Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Uh, Phil's we, laughing already. We, we initially said we were not going to do any punditry. That's um, true. Though, Does this count as punditry? Probably really? not because it's such a fringe sort of... I hardly see how texts that are chock full of references to de-territorialization and Deleuze <laughs> and Guattari and um, that do that weird academic thing of using the imaginary yeah. as a, a noun. Um, yeah, I, I don't see that being punditry, but okay, fair enough. So we have two different left accelerationist manifestos, and we'll get into uh, a bit more in a moment what accelerationism is as a political philosophy. But just to identify them first, we have Accelerate, Manifesto for an Accelerationist Politics, and the Accelerate there has a, a hashtag. Yeah. Now that's by Alex Williams and Nick. They're, they're accelerationists, so they're very with it. That's right. You know, um, they Nick, know what the kids are doing these days. His last name is, it's an accelerationist last name because it's only um, consonants. <laughs> so it's Nick, I, I believe, Cernicek, S-R-N-I-C-E-K. That's written in 2013. And then the second text that we're going to deal with in the formal sense, is called Alt-Woke Manifesto, and it's from 2017. It was published in a journal that is called Triple Ampersand and has as its title Three Ampersands and then Journal after that as a superscript. Uh, the journal is a superscript. I, uh, I picked this... Um, Sort of randomly, accelerate a manifesto. Well, you wanted to do accelerationist. Yeah, I wanted to do accelerationism. You want to explain what that is? Yeah. And uh, okay, so what is accelerationism? Accelerationism is a kind of political philosophy associated most, uh, I think, most directly with a British philosopher named Nick Land, um, who started off in this British think tank, working in a kind of cyberpunk left-wing milieu in the early 90s. And I forget the name of the uh, British think tank he was associated with, but it was uh, Warwick, somewhere in Warwick, I believe. And there were a number of people um, who were part of this, and they had taken ideas from cybernetics, and they were applying uh, cybernetic ideas, which are these sort of network system theory ideas that have to do with how computer systems and automated systems and actually systems more generally operate and the, the feedback loops that they uh, create. And they were taking those ideas and applying them to political philosophy and mixing that, uh, especially in Land's case, with a kind of uh, lurid Gothic nihilism early on. That is how accelerationism 
started, and at its core, it was the idea, particularly in its earliest incarnations, that modernity was, in its most elemental sense, an ever-increasing rate of change in the material conditions, I shouldn't say in the material conditions, an ever-increasing rate of change in the basic conditions of material and social reality and technological reality of uh, the world. So he compares it to, um, and so like, he also says, because things are changing so rapidly, it becomes almost impossible to have the time to sort of think and decide in relation to the conditions, uh, so the social and political and economic reality. And he compares it to uh, this is Nick Land. Thermonuclear weapons provide the most vividly illuminating examples. An H-bomb employs an A-bomb as a trigger. A fission reaction sparks a fusion reaction. The fusion mass is crushed into ignition by a blast process. Modernity is a blast. The idea being, you know, that capitalist modernity is not only a system that produces things and that has a concomitant social reality associated with it, it is itself an engine of ever-increasing rates of change. Right, which which is something that, I mean, like, you know, a more conservative proponent of capitalism like, like Schumpeter, right, and creative destruction would say, right, that sort of there's this kind of constant process of, of churn that is essential to capitalism and the accelerations would say sort of, you know, as time progresses that – kind of constant churn accelerates. We accelerate the dialectic. Let's not get so deep in the weeds first. Big picture, what's interesting about this to me is that it, the reason I wanted to talk about this, uh, there are two basic reasons. The first reason is that it is a kind of grand theory that you find fewer and fewer of these days. So Part of the grandness of it is the emptiness of it. You can mm-hmm. fill it with many different things. But the flip side of that is that because it's not – its innards aren't cluttered and weighted down, it can puff larger and larger and contain more and more within it. So there is a, a grand theory element to accelerationism. That was part of the interest. And the second part of yeah. the interest was that – and this is related – that it has opposite – that these meanings and these valences, these vectors of accelerationism um, are antithetical to each other. So it's this theory that is supposed to explain modernity and where we're heading. And yet in its sort of practice, in its actual incarnation as political philosophy or, or ideological uh, uh, valence, it's got, takes on like, completely antithetical meanings depending on which mode of accelerationism you're talking about. So there's a Lawrence Joseph poem from his book, So Where Are We? Um, a fable that sort of is, is operating within the same territory. And he's talking about the sort of um, the world after the World Trade Center attacks. The flow of data since the attacks has surged. Techno-capital permanently, digitally, semi-oticized, virtually unlimited in freedom and power, taking billions of bodies on the planet with it. Future, past, cosmogenies, the void, are in whose vision? Ever-deepening, ravenous cruelty, viciousness, annihilation, defended and worshipped. But is there a more beautiful city? 
parts of it anyway, another path to the harbor, the border between the sea and land fluctuating, a line, a curve, peck slip to Water Street, to Front Street, to Pine, to uh, Coentes, slip to Pearl, to Stone Street, to Exchange Place, the light in majestic degrees. Um, and if you cut out the sort of nostalgic attachment to place, that sort of process would be sort of similar to what the accelerationists are concerned with and interested in. And for them, you know, this is not something that you can fight with a kind of nostalgic local politics, a kind of like um, you, you sort of have to embrace the process of this kind of ever-increasing change and find ways to operate within uh, this kind of continual radical reshaping of the world. The other reason, and then let's get into these texts, the other reason why this is interesting to me is it's part of this evolving way of understanding the world that I think you could sort of trace back to cybernetics in its most recent incarnation but that has actual hard physics manifestations too. It just says, no, no, like human life is just physics. It's not even that it's just biology. Biology is also just physics. And this is all just systems. These are all, you know, uh, you go from simple systems to, you know, to complex systems and you have, you know, emergent complexity. But the, the basic flows and the nature of those systems, you know, in the, in the sense of, uh, fractal patterns being recreated at scale, right? That there are these inherent physical properties that apply to both organic and inorganic life and that you find in fungi growth, but you also find at the astronomical level, the quantum level and and, and at, the, uh, at the grand level and that this is sort of the original – you know, or, or this sense of all uh, reality and, and modernity itself and, and human reality as being merely part of, or maybe merely is a, a value judgment, as being part of, without any additional anthropological element, as being part of a physical system, um, is something that I, I'm interested in and that, uh, you know, disturbs me but fascinates me at the same time so that was the other thing yeah have you have you read um lewis thomas uh lives of a cell yeah years ago yeah he's an essay on on uh uh like viewing society as an organism mm. there's a bit where he talks about ants and how um you know whenever somebody's writing about Ants, they always make this big deal how different they are, you know, ant nature is from us, how it's a totally alien species. And he says, but, you know, the, the real thing is that it's actually startling how similar ants are to human beings. They, they raise armies, they take slaves, they, they, um, they constantly communicate, they farm. Um, and, you know, he sort of settles in, you know, the thing that, 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 makes us recoil is this idea of a collective intelligence, right? Um, and then, you know, sort of the rest of the essay is sort of tracing the ways in which, you know, you can see um, the possibilities of that collective intelligence right. within the human species as well, as well, something that we sort of instinctually 
um, want to revolt against. Yeah, because the collective intelligence is not uh, supplemental to, or it's not in addition to individual intelligence. It's all there is, right? <laughs> the, there is no such thing as an intelligent ant. Right. There's only the emergent complexity. There's only the intelligence of the system. The ant has no agency, and we're going to – this is a, a good way to get into this because it actually uh, probably intended this, and I'm just catching on now, but you know, this is at the heart of this debate between these different modes of accelerationism, uh, whether there is – human agency uh, has a place within this, uh, this system of change and system of acceleration and production or whether it's pure delusion – and the advance promised by this uh, system, advance in a physical sense, movement forward, is inevitably away from the delusion of human agency. But yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So accelerate. Manifesto for an accelerationist politics. What is there to say about this? So it's written in 2013. And – it is, I think, useful in a couple of ways. One, it's a very straightforward articulation of, I think, the premises of this sort of most generic version of left accelerationism. And it's, it's, it's interested in being um, not uh, originalist in its Marxian leftism, but authentic in its leftism, right? So it's, it's, trying to harness this idea of accelerationism to pre-existing really enlightenment categories. And it says this explicitly at a certain point. And the other thing that's interesting about it, it's written in 2013, is how much of the kind of the foundational, how many of the, the, the premises in this were, you know, it's talking at length in the first section about neoliberalism and setting up neoliberalism as this paradigmatic prison that we need to accelerate out of or escape from and how much of this has become boilerplate. You know, it's, this is accelerationist radicalism, but stuff is boilerplate. This idea, you know, who doesn't talk about neoliberalism now? Who doesn't sneer at neoliberalism now? Who doesn't use neoliberalism as a catch-all for everything that's uh, – And also they talk about the breakdown of the planetary climate climate, climate mm. system, right? Um, it's – yeah, it, it lays out a lot of sort of – you know, pretty widespread left kind of critiques of the system, right? Like, and the idea is we are heading towards a collapse, a economic collapse, a a climate collapse. Like, sort of, there's a it begins at the beginning of the second decade of the 21st century. Global civilization faces a new breed of cataclysm. These coming apocalypses ridicule the norms and organizational structures of the politics which were forged in the birth of the nation state, the rise of capitalism, and a 20th century of unprecedented wars. Which, by the way, now. One thing I would say, and as I was reading this, I was thinking, like, what should a manifesto do, especially a political manifesto? And um, <laughs> there is – there's a real importance, I think, to just the quality of the writing. In I totally agree. Yeah, because, I mean, what, what you want – in some sense, they're just sort of – they're basically laying out the basics in a pretty straightforward manner. It's kind of a template, but you need to sort of – ignite some passion, right? Like if you want people to believe in this, you know, what is the, the William James bit in the will to believe about how, you know, ideas can have either live or dead wires. Yeah. And, you know, you want to have some sort of spark that's going to 
set life to a dead wire where it wasn't before. And, you know, if you look back at other manifestos, I mean, you know, what's the first line of, of the Communist Manifesto? Um, uh, it's uh, – uh, let, me, let me get it. Emancipate uh, uh, yourself. No, 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 no. A specter is haunting uh, Europe. Ah, yeah, specter is haunting Europe. The right, specter right, right. of communism, right? You know, Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. But you know uh, uh, Joseph de Maistre's retort to that? No. Say that um, uh, the man is born free, but ev- everywhere is in change. That's as if you were to ask why it is that sheep who are born carnivorous everywhere, nevertheless, everywhere nibble grass, um, which is uh, an interesting retort. Hmm. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so this this is in its kind of straightforwardness and, and oftentimes kind of jargony language uh it it's kind of a slog yeah look it's not rousing in any sense and it it feels more like a what would you call it like these are not um nobody's nailing this to any doors you know what i mean it's not um it's not assertive and confrontational in that way but it is useful i think as a sort of very a clearly stated articulation of this position. And it's most useful in that it's the clearest case I could find of, and, and to give it credit, it's at least written clearly, yeah. which is not true of a lot of the yes. Excel and eight. We'll get to this with the, the woke manifesto, but it's written clearly. And it in so far as it's deliberately um, self-consciously st- still trying to operate in a leftist mold and from left-wing premises about history and, uh, you know, social, uh, sort of social scientific premises. It shows what the dichotomy is between these enlightenment-oriented or or between this human-centered accelerationism that still takes the human subject as it's the ultimate end and uh, the sort of right-wing accelerationism, which we can talk about in contrast to this, which is what land represents. All right, well, so let's, let's go through it. So the opening sort of lays out the problems, right? So, you know, neoliberalism has wrought um, catastrophic climate change. Uh, Continued financial crisis has led governments to embrace the paralyzing death spiral policies of austerity, privatization, and social welfare services, mass unemployment, and stagnating wages, right? This is written in 2013, so... Um, but this is my point, right? This isn't a totally familiar right. litany at this uh, yeah. point. The future has been canceled, new and aggressive incursions by the pi- private sector into what remains of social democratic institutions and services... Uh, organized labor systematically weakened, capable of only mildly mitigating the new structural adjustments. Uh, and then uh, the left is sort of uh, – has their new social movements, but they expend considerable energy on internal direct democratic process and effective self-valorization over strategic efficacy and frequently propound a variant of neo-primitist localism. Uh, as if to oppose the abstract violence of globalized capital. This is before the resurgence mm-hmm, of uh, an ephemeral authenticity of communal immediacy. So before the resurgence of you know, it's just written in 2013. So certainly before the resurgence of the DSA in America and Bernie yeah. and the socialist left. The but yeah, so but left. these kind of critique, like all right. So <laughs> you know, I was thinking this. Th- this is a, a uh, an article by the economist uh, Ethan Capstein, right? 
Um, the global economy is leaving millions of disaffected workers in its train. Inequality, unemployment, and endemic poverty have become its handmaidens. Over the past decade, despite a continuing boom in international trade and finance, productivity has faltered and inequality in the United States and unemployment in Europe have worsened. If the post-World War II social contract with workers of full employment and com comprehensive social welfare is to be broken, political support for the burgeoning global economy could easily collapse. Easing pressures on the losers of the new open economy must now be the focus of economic policy if the process of globalization is to be sustained. It is hardly sensationalist to claim that in the absence of broad-based policies and programs designed to help working people, the political debate in the United States and many other countries will soon turn sour. Populists and demagogues of various stripes will find solutions to contemporary economic problems in protectionism and xenophobia. When do you think that was written? I don't know. It was the May-June issue of Foreign Affairs in 1996. Right. Right. Like, so this sort of... Yeah, but it, this has become – these ideas are not necessarily new, but it's really – this has become, I would say, in the last – post-2008, really, post-financial crisis, yeah. this has become an increasingly mainstream set of ideas. And even in 2013, maybe it was still felt sort of fresh. But at this point, this sort of critique of neoliberalism right. – uh, neoliberalism like neoconservatism bears – the way it's used bears little relation to how the, the sort of original neoliberals understood it or intended Globalization, it. Globalization, free market, free it's trade Not, not what it meant at all. Right. What neoliberalism means now is globalization, free trade, but also a kind of left-right centrism that takes a pro-market – pro-individualist position right. and says, you know, applies a kind of libertarian model to the market sphere while – I think this is the key thing about how neoliberalism is used now is it's the idea that you combine a sort of libertarian – uh, market primacy perspective in the economic sphere and the idea that there's a market solution for every social problem, you combine that with a social liberalism that enshrines um, individual rights when it comes to uh, identity questions. And so it'd be like pro-gay marriage and anti-union is what people mean right. by neoliberalism now. But, you know, you, you read this – first of all, I, I read this thing – I read their critique of neoliberalism in this Accelerate Manifesto and it's bizarre to me that they're starting with 1979. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand. Is this a grand theory that this Accelerate – are we talking about undoing something or, or responding to conditions of capitalism that are fundamental and or are we talking about responding to a, a neoliberal program that started in 1979 i mean it seems weird to me and arbitrary to me the way in which this model or or this version of this kind of left-wing accelerationism thinks that the thing that needs to be accelerated out of is neoliberal capitalism and the idea there you know as opposed to uh, you know, earlier forms of capitalism. And I think the idea there is that what neoliberalism produces through this sort of left-right centrist consensus is like a complete uh, a complete imprisonment of the political imagination in that by offering unbounded consumer choice when it comes not only to the things you buy but to the ways you express yourself and combining that with – 
with the the interest, uh, corporate interests, and and uh, sort of market primacy, what you end up with is like a totally sterilized political imagination where people can't think of anything unlike present conditions. They can't. They can no longer imagine radical change. Or you know, let's give a sort of concrete example. So. I think Ross Douthat made this point about, you know, there were sort of these kind of different flavors of feminism, some of which were sort of more libertarian. Then you had the Dworkin types, like we mentioned earlier, which was kind of anti-pornography, right? And um, the the libertarian version won, right, in the sense that we have kind of, uh, you know, this sort of increasing, like, uh, you know, all, all all the attempts to sort of push back porn just dramatically failed. There's this kind of uh, uh, sexual libertarianism that was married to sort of and in the interests of market forces, right? And so, from Duthat's perspective, and he's of course a conservative, right? The um, economic influences and interests were always going to tilt the tilt the balance in favor of one style of, you know, in this case, feminist reactions to, um, you know, to, you know, pornography and, and, and ideas about sex and women's place in the world in a way that sort of, you know, didn't seem obvious would happen at the time. Uh, and yet, you know, it was these kind of underlying conditions and economic practices and incentives that, 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 that ultimately tilted the balance. And then it just sort of seemed like, well, this is the way that the world is. Mm. Um, and that kind of process is going to be happening throughout. Right? Yeah. Well, if you look at why it happened there and I, I, uh, it's interesting. I, I think Douthat would, uh, do that Douthat would sort of come down more on social forces as being responsible, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, but, the thing is that if the if the increase and this is the sort of I think a vulgar critique of neoliberalism that often goes too far, but here it is. The idea is that increases in individual rights enhance consumer buying power, basically. So if you're selling things, you're like, yeah, of course, you define your sexual identity however you want. That way we can target you better. We can sell you more things in a more specific way. You become a that, – that individual rights, this sort of liberal notion of individual rights gets married to the individual as a commercial entity and that these two things are reinforcing. In terms of the larger system – it produces this kind of uh, gridlock in the political imagination where like you can't think of anything else because everything, every form of rebellion gets subsumed into the system before it ever has a chance to express itself. Um, so, you, you know, the, the any kind of authentic rebellion within the system immediately gets neutered by being given – a viable commercial expression, right? right? But, but there's this uh, documentary that came out a few the, years the, ago. In the, in the 
uh, Accelerate Manifesto say, modernity is reduced to statistical measures of economic growth and social innovation becomes encrusted with kitsch remainders from our communal past. Right. Thatcherite Reaganite deregulation sits comfortably alongside Victorian back-to-basics family and religious values. There's clearly some truth to that. I mean, that, that's <laughs> not... And then he goes, as neoliberalism has progressed, rather than enabling individual creativity, it has tended towards eliminating cognitive inventiveness in favor of an effective production line of scripted interactions. I um, had a student once who was writing a story, and initially it was like a kind of Marxist worker in the factory trying to lead a revolution. Uh, And I was like, well, you know, if you want to – how would you adapt this to the modern day? And he revised it, and it was a guy working in a – Working in a sort of basically he was working for BuzzFeed, right? Mm. You know, like a BuzzFeed-like company. And his job was to write these articles. It would be like, you know, Celebrity X did Empowering Thing Y. Or Celebrity Z did, you know, know, like Terribly Offensive Thing, um, you know, Q or whatever. Uh, And it was just kind of like this mix and match. And then what starts happening – to this guy is that as he's writing the articles, um, somebody is else within the company is posting identical articles before he can even finish them mm-hmm. because they're all just sort of, you know, the same kind of like buzzwords according to particular types of yeah. um, sort of scripted political Oh, I know very ideas. well. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Social I mean, automation. Yeah. And yeah. so and you I can, know a guy who wrote something about that. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh oh, you you're looking at me. Yes, I did write uh, an article recently, Phil. Now that you ask, uh, wherein I describe a process that I refer to as social automation, which is precisely this idea. Now I was applying it to this uh, to the idea of the the kind of culture war fighting itself mm-hmm. and having its own internal logic, and in, in which. Uh, people naturally instinctively gravitate to these preset positions um, and believe that they are fighting their own battles and believe that they are acting on their own conscience, but are in fact essentially fulfilling these kind of algorithmic processes that are written into this broader uh, network of of this kind of prescripted culture war. And I thought Covington boys thing was a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. But it's the same process there with BuzzFeed insofar as it's not just that there's a generic template that they're filling out. It's that that generic template, and this is what I mean by social automation, that generic template corresponds to, it's not just boilerplate, It the boilerplate corresponds to what people understand to be fundamental aspects of their personal sociological social identities and that these things are becoming as a result in part of the networking, as a result of the way in which these network effects aggregate as we join into these larger and larger systems like ant colonies, right? That you, when you join into larger and larger systems, you become more like the ant in the ant colony. Right. You know, you are de-subjectivized, you are depersonalized by your participation in these larger systems, which have their own logic, which have their own emergent properties. Um, look, the, the, this, this Accelerate Manifesto, 
says this, okay? It says, today's politics is beset by an inability to generate the new ideas and modes of organization necessary to transform our societies to confront and resolve the coming annihilations, okay? And that's, I think, the basic idea we're getting at with the, the constraint of the political imagination. There's a great term for that in this documentary by uh, this lunatic filmmaker who's half brilliant, half lunatic, Adam Curtis, British guy, did this film, got a lot of buzz, called Hypernormalization. He's been doing these great BBC documentaries for years. And um, hypernormalization was a term that in, emerged in, uh, I think, the, the just before perestroika, late Soviet period before uh, perestroika and Glasnost and before the fall, referring to you know, you know, like the Baudrillardian concept of hyper reality. Mm -hmm. So it's in a way very similar hyper normalization. Like you can no longer describe reality. Um, the, the lie about the social reality has become so baked in to the inescapable subconscious premises of the reality that, that that figment is not just normalized, but all all sort of conscious awareness of the dissonance of the lie gets effaced by the way in which the lie is embedded in this much larger larger system. So it gets hyper normalized, you know, and then that hyper normalization leads to a cracking apart. Of the system. Give, give me a concrete example. What you so uh, late Soviet period, um, I think the idea of hypernormalization would, would refer to, for instance, let's say you're living in Moscow, let alone the countryside. If you're living in Moscow, you know there are bread lines. Right. You know that there are black markets everywhere. And now the, the Kremlin might occasionally pay tribute to the reality of those black markets by saying, you know, there are corrupt counter-revolutionaries trying to undo the revolution, but right. but you have to participate in the lie. Right. Uh, you, you know the joke about the uh, the red and the black ink? No. It, sort of Western, Standal devoted, so high-minded. Communist decides, you know, he's going to go to the Soviet Union and, um, you know, his family is concerned. They've heard things. He's like, yeah. well, I'll send you letters back. I'll let you know how things are going on. And I know they're censors. So anything that I write that's true, mm. I'm going to write in black ink. Mm. And anything that I write in, in red, you'll know that that's a lie, mm. right? And so they, you know, he goes over to the Soviet Union and they get this letter and it's just like, this is truly a worker's paradise. There's just an abundance of everything. You go to the stores, they, uh, you know, uh, you can get whatever you want. Everybody's living happily. It truly is a, an egalitarian classless society. There couldn't be a better place to live. I'm so glad I came here. I, 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 there's only one, I mean, it's so small that I, I shouldn't even mention it, but there's only one slight problem. I, I guess I'll say it's kind of hard to find red ink. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well told, by the way. That's no, a good joke set up there. Um, All right. So, so, yeah. so what do they, what do they want to do? They don't know what they want to do. That's this the is problem. The problem. They don't know. Yeah, yeah, this is I mean, problem. so this is, this is why it's, this is, this is reason two, aside from the sort of writing being sort of dry, is it's not, like, they know what they don't like, right? They don't like, um, kind of contemporary 
left politics that they described as a folk politics of localism, direct action, and relentless horizontalism, right? Yeah. And instead, they want a accelerationist politics at ease with a modernity of abstraction, complexity, globality, and technology. I think that's the heart of it right there, mm-hmm. insofar as there's an idea at the heart of it. Right. The idea is that you have to in a in a real marxian sense right the the anti-capitalist thrust of 20th century leftist politics i think oftentimes got moved further and further away from the marxian sense that capitalism was a stage in an inevitable dialectical process that it was not only a necessary stage but you know sort of the the penultimate stage yeah. and not just that you had to pass through industrial capitalism to produce the the proletariat who would become the subjects of the revolution in an instrumental sense, but that in a broader sense that you had to create the capital, the means of production, right? That created the technical possibility for creating plenty and eliminating scarcity we're a product of capitalism. You needed capitalism to produce those means that would uh, that would provide for the workers' paradise. And so they're saying in that sort of traditional Marxian sense, like you can't retreat from capitalism into primitivism, anarcho-primitivism, or into merely localist, you know, into the commune, let's say, the the, the self-enclosed commune or the self-enclosed social utopian experiment, you have to embrace the network globalized uh, aspect of late modern capitalism. Okay, you know, fine. So far, so good. Um, Now, to me, one of the problems with these sorts of left-wing postulates in in a case like this is that, uh, you know, there's there's a little... Little acknowledgement, let alone discussion of what that globalization is, what that late modernity is, what that technological capitalism is, and and the ways in which it's enmeshed in these different institutions, the administrative state, um, the the actual kind of mechanisms of this quasi-mystical, metaphysical notion of um, late capitalism that they're talking about, but in the broadest sense, they're saying we can't retreat into the parochial. We have to, we have to seize the globalized means of production and embrace that, that globalization, that and that uh, hyper networked, hyper technological late capitalist reality. Yeah, the tools to be found in social ne- uh, to be found in social network analysis, agent-based modeling, big data analytics, and non-equilibrium economic models are necessary cognitive mediators for understanding complex systems like the modern economy. The accelerationist left must become literate in these technical fields. I mean, this is sort of an update to Marxism in the sense that Marxism had this sort of veneer of scientists, you know, scient- it was a scientific system that had proved this is the way that history progressed and this was sort of a natural um, – uh, thing and 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 this is sort of operating the same territory. Like, look at the way that the global system is working. Look at the way that it is moving us towards a cataclysm, and we using all these buzzwords are going to have the tools to actually 
have a hard leftist politics that'll work, you know, like, I mean, you know, sort of centralized economies, uh, central planning, uh, never really bore much in the way of fruit. Right. Um, but maybe with, you know, big data analytics, you know, will, or, or, or what yeah, have yeah. you, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, you know, it's sort of motions to this stuff. Um, and I actually think that they, 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 they use Chile as a, they use this interesting experiment yeah. in Chile. It's actually sort of fascinating, sort of cybernetic experiment in Allende's Chile, but they're also, you know, sentimental for the Bolivarian revolution and, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, well, they say, they, they say the Bolivarian mass. was sort of stuck in an old model of, of, uh, socialism, but they're sentimentally, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, Ch- Chile, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, that they think is, is maybe a, well, no, Chile had this particular, uh, I forget what it's called now, but there was this Chilean, almost you know, pre-internet adaptation to the um, before you know before the CIA took Allende out. Yeah. Uh, there was a almost cybernetic approach to the command economy. So the idea right. was we will use these feedback loops and network effects in order to create simulations of uh, sort of. Uh, economic models, supply and demand models, or not supply and demand, but uh, production models. and it, So that we'll actually be able to have a communism yeah, that works yes, is the idea, yes. right? So, you know, and this is where it's sort of like the kind of Hayek critique of, you know, what what is, in, you know, the sort of information embedded in price that you can't, that is inherently sort of um, impossible to to, mm-hmm. to plug into a kind of central command node system, right? Right. That, that um, you know, price, the, to give a quick gloss on it, right? Like the price of a good is going to factor in kind of the decisions of, the decisions and preferences and desires of, you know, millions of producers and of different, you know, different and disparate yeah. goods across an economy. So, you know, if you... If you want to buy tin, right, the price of tin is going to correspond to, you know, not just what's happening within your discrete right. industry that uses tin, but within other industries that can use tin or some other type of metal or sort of goods that, you know, goods that use tin that are inessential versus essential goods and, and you know, the, the kind of growth and contract, you know, con- contraction of economies and, 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 <laughs> you know what people want yeah, and it's, it's all a complex just, system it, it it but those that those details that that information that is embedded in the price is not something that you can like there, there's no way to actually collect that into a central right. you know, authority and so i think one of the notionings towards like big data is this idea that you know maybe we really are just you know maybe you actually really could model what people will want or how an economic you know what what an economy would need if you just had enough yeah though of google course, analytics right, right but though of course even if you took a purely material instrumental view view of human beings physical systems are not necessarily deterministic right, right? this is what emergent complexity means yeah. this is why uh you know and i i not an expert on emergent complexity by any means, but you cannot um, 
you cannot deterministically model even all physical events. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the idea, which big data is certainly interested in selling to everybody, that they can optimize every process of life besides all of the philosophical problems with that, you know, who defines optimization, who's defining desired outcomes here, is also not technically possible. But okay, that's the left accelerationist position in its most sort of, I think, uh, clearly stated, and I don't mean generic dismissively, but I mean broadly stated sense. And they say one other thing in this that I want to quote. And so that, that position is we need to seize control of, on a grand scale, the instruments and processes of the global economy. Mm-hmm. They say something And, and also, else. like, we're not that interested in democ- d- democracy as pro- process, yes, right? Yes, yes. And that's yeah. small-minded and mm-hmm. parochial and sort of yeah. sentimental leftism. And then they have, they, have, they have three, what they say is actually concrete, medium-term goals, right? One, build an intellectual infrastructure. Yeah. Sure. Um <laughs> Wide scale media reform. They they want to. This is this is the part. This that is really, it's so silly, man. Bringing yeah. they need to bring these bodies as close as pop, po- possible to popular control, which right. is crucial to un, undoing the current presentation of the state of things. Like, I don't know that bringing popular control of the media um, <laughs> is going to necessarily do what they what they think it's going to do for a acceleration of politics. But whatever. And then the third thing is. Uh, we need to reconstitute various forms of class class power. Um, I don't, you know, we need to move beyond the notion that an organically generated global proletariat already exists. Instead, it must seek, seek to knit together a disparate array of partial proletarian identities, often embodied in a post-Fordist forms of precarious labor. So, we need to have an intellectual class with good ideas. We need to have media that mm. helps us get right. those out to the people which is what the people will want if they have more democratic control. And then we need to bind together sort of disparate groups that don't necessarily have a natural We kind need of to reconstitute yeah. a, a revolutionary class because yeah. the industrial proletariat no longer exists. So th- that's a good summation of half of yeah. w- what I think is worthwhile to discuss here. And this will lead to, by the way yeah. – a Promethean politics of maximal okay. mastery there, there over society and its environment. And it's the mastery that I... Well, no, no, but that's that's the heart of it, actually. Mm-hmm. There are two issues here. The first is narrower. Right. The first narrower issue is that Marxism, communism, the Marxist tradition, needs a proletariat, which is an industrial class, an industrial proletariat. It's not a. This is not a uh, an abstract model of a human. It's a specific historical type that no longer exists, and that's who was necessary to the revolution. So, if the proletariat no longer exists, what do you do? And there are much, well, much and also more the interesting. Was not necessarily <laughs> is interested in in. Okay, but yeah. but but the idea in the yeah. Marxist sense would have been. You know that class consciousness would have taken care of yeah. that, and 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 that eventually conditions would have gotten bad enough that the proletariat would have bonded together and and uh, become revolutionary and become solidaristic across national lines. Forget about the ways in which that didn't happen. Nevertheless, 
you needed a proletariat. There are much more interesting attempts to grapple with the problem of it was a, a Marxist uh, the what would you call him Marxist historian theorist a guy named Moshe Pastone who died fairly recently but very very interesting ideas about this actually and really thought deeply about it um, and is worth reading on this I don't find this a, a compelling. Uh, it, it doesn't even really try. Obviously, it's only a sentence. They don't make this the centerpiece. But they, uh, the idea that we'll just – we'll recreate a kind of global class that's at the, the – is the subject of this new left-wing uh, revolutionary politics is less than convincing. The second and more important part though is what you bring up with the Promethean mastery, right? right? Because – there are two basic accelerationist positions. The first accelerationist position, maybe there are three or four or infinite, but I'm only going to talk about two. I want to deal with dualism for now. There's a, let's call it the Landian position, which is like a, the original Nick Land position, which is that accelerationism is moving further and further away from the human. Yeah. And then there is this left acceleration, which is saying we need to reassert the human, reassert Promethean mastery over the systems. Well, it's it's <laughs> the Promethean mastery of the intellectual class who will ultimately be controlling these tools that will actually enable you mastery, right? Okay, but there are still humans at the center sure. of this. Yes. Now, only – you're right. There's still a particular humans. Nevertheless, there's human consciousness. There's human agency. And my interest in acceleration in part has to do with the way that the same word, the same name, mm -hmm. the same framework describes both the prison and the escape plot. Mm -hmm. So Land is saying that accelerationism is the – physical process of these networked systems amplifying their own signal. So these network systems create feedback loops. Those feedback loops get amplified by the system. That amplification increases the feedback loop in an ever-increasing rate of change that takes us farther and farther away from a human subject asserting even delusions of control or mastery over them. That's sort of the basic landing presupposition. It's explicitly – sorry, pardon my beeping. Okay. The same concept, the same theoretical framework of accelerationism is employed and claimed by people. We call it for the moment left and right accelerationists – and accept that political connotation who mean, you know, antithetical meanings. Um, but it's not that accelerationism is incoherent. It's actually very coherent. That's why it has opposite meanings, because there's a density to it in terms of the focus on uh, this modernity as a system um, and, and so you, you get a kind of in a, in a kind of almost classic sense, a thesis and an antithesis joined together 
Um, and one position is the need to generate ever greater speed. That's the left accelerationist position. But the other fundamental premise is there's no way to slow down. Yeah. Those are, those are mutually exclusive. If you can't slow down, there's no need to generate greater speed. If you need to generate greater speed, implicitly, necessarily, it means uh, that there's at least the possibility of dissipation of that speed. Um, so the sort of left acceleration, accelerationist position is we need to reclaim control over these things that are getting away from us and that the only way to reclaim control over them is to push further into them, that you need to go through capitalism to get out of capitalism is the kind of formulation of that. But the flip side, or the, the antithetical way, it's, position... It's worth noting that a recent cover of The Economist magazine was slowballization, right? Which is actually that some of the processes of globalization have slowed down, right? Trade has fallen from 61% mm. of world GDP in 2008 to 58% now. Um, intermediate exports rose fast in the 20 years to, to 2008, but since then have dropped from 19% of world GDP to 17%, and they have a bunch of yeah. other metrics. So anyway, the... <laughs> so, suggesting that it that it can slow down and it also you know look obviously there's a resurgence of um, nationalism as a political movement which has right. brought with it trade protectionism well so this is one of those things about let me just you know, finish the, the one thought on land the, the the flip side of this left accelerationist position which makes more sense to me yeah if you accept the premises of accelerationism the left acceleration doesn't really seem internally viable to me, whereas the right acceleration, though I view it as uh, doomed in a sense, I also find more serious and more alarming in that this idea that capitalism and technology contain an internal logic that needs no human subject mm -hmm. that requires no consciousness if such a thing as consciousness exists beyond a kind of epiphenomenon illusion that if there's any if that's true in any sense it will only get more true as the system builds and grows and that's the landian position is we're moving farther and farther away from any kind of delusion of humanistic delusion yeah and so yeah, there's a there's a, a story in Clark's World recently. Mm. Uh, you know, Clark's World, the sci-fi, yeah. very good. Sci -fi oh magazine. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an it was old basically like, magazine, right? yeah, uh, it was. God, I'm forgetting the name, but it was basically the premise was it's this world where human beings have created AIs that are basically just running everything now, and the humans are fine, but like things start happening, like people start realizing, like if they try and do violence against one another, they'll get zapped, and it'll just kind of like immobilize them uh so like violence slows down and then humans start realizing that the birth rate is just declining and just continuing to, to decline and nobody knows how it's happening but sort of the machines that keep them fed that you know provide them all the products they want um have clearly decided that like we need to sort of 
slowly <laughs> basically eradicate the human race. And right. the story is about like this one couple, you know, the one guy who's basically like, there's less suffering now. Like right. the machines right. provide everything we want. They've prevented murder and rape and all this other stuff. And, you know, his wife who like wants to have a baby with him and resents uh, the sort of basically – End of the human. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll put the name in the show notes. I forget the title of it right now, but it was it was a it was a good story. So I made the mistake of suggesting as our second left accelerationist manifesto this alt woke manifesto. Yeah, which I, I, I want to say yeah, one other thing. So true. they they understand that there needs to be a sort of more broad based politics, right? And there's no proletarian class. They need to knit, knit this together. Um, I, I wanted to read this bit from. Uh, you read Schumpeter. No. All right. So he's sort of right-leaning economist. Um, his whole bit about um, mid-20th century uh, intellectuals, like capitalism creates this intellectual class, which is naturally going to be anti-capitalist because it produces more than the market can sustain. And the man who has gone through a college or university easily becomes psychically unemployable in manual occasions, um, you know, but, you know, doesn't get the, the, the work that he wants. And so, you know, his discontent breeds resentment uh, and it rationalizes into a social criticism. Anyway. Capitalist evolution produces a labor movement, which obviously is not the creation of the intellectual group. Labor never craved intellectual, le intellectual leadership, but intellectuals invaded labor politics. Listening to the intellectual, the workman is almost invariably conscious of an impassable gulf, if not of downright distrust. In order to get hold of him and to compete with non-intellectual leaders, the intellectual is driven to courses entirely unnecessary for the latter who can afford to frown. Having no genuine authority and feeling always in danger of being unceremoniously told to mind his business, he must flatter, promise, and incite, nurse left wings and scowling minorities, sponsor doubtful or submarginal cases, appeal to fringe ends, profess himself ready to obey. In short, behave towards the masses as his predecessors behave first towards their ecclesiastical superiors, later towards princes and other individual patrons, still later toward the collective master of bourgeois complexion. Yeah. And um, so I think there's this sort of <laughs> – they make th – this doesn't really do that. Mm. Uh, it sort of assumes that this mastery is going to come, that right. the masses are going to want what he's offering and not sort of a Tucker Carlson style, the economy is set up to screw you, working man. Um, but would of, you say are they interested in the masses? I mean it, they don't – deal with the masses at all. They don't seem particularly interested in the... Except of their three practical goals. Yeah. One is building an intellectual class. Which is a vanguard, not yep. the masses. And then two and three are all related to the masses, well, right? Two is media, to, right? Media and, and, and knitting together various sort of... Three is related to the masses, but two is we need to control the media so that we can direct the masses. But it's the, me the media needs to be brought under democratic control. Mm. Right, direct yeah. democratic control. Right, which you know, is that the phrase they use? Direct democratic mm -hmm. control. Mm, yeah. some, it's something like that. Yeah. Accelerate, come on back, pick up your speed. Stamina, fill me up. That's what I need. I made the mistake of suggesting as our second left manifesto this thing called alt woke manifesto, which is to put it in a two sentence version. It is a anti-neoliberal woke identity politics version of accelerationism that wants to 
<laughs> reconstitute some of some sort of Foucaultian idea of identity or something like that. Um, it's it's it, I, I think it's it's useful insofar as so the introduction the first sentence is there's no term more ubiquitous, obnoxious, and self-serving in our current lex- lexicon is woke. You know, it's like woke is a misnomer. It's actually asleep and myopic. Woke is the left curled into a fetal ball, scribbling think pieces about broad city while its rights get trampled by ascendant fascism domestically and globally. Woke is, woke is optimistic. It believes Jaden Smith becoming the face of Louis Vuitton is enough to qualify as a win for progress, mm. um, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, I, but, and then, you know, it's, 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 it's telling to me that your manifesto, which is theoretically about all these practical things that you want and this new leftist politics you're going to put in place, opens with a rant about how you don't like I guess wokeness on Twitter, you know. Um, yeah, the whole thing is just sort of shallow, and right? It's just not very interesting, and I regret choosing that instead yeah. of what I should have chosen, which is this essay by a writer who I, I'm not really familiar with, but who wrote a what I think is a much, much more interesting essay called "Notes on Black Acceleration" mm-hmm. in a, an art journal called Eflux, and uh, the writer's name is Aria Dean D E A N. I really wish. I had, unfortunately, I didn't get that to fill in time, but it's a way more interesting articulation of a sort of an articulation of broadly just the tensions we were talking about in left accelerationism concerning these ideas of who is the subject and whether human agency is important. And also in particular, uh, the I forget how it's put here, but basically the convergence between tendencies in black political thought, especially Afro-pessimism and Afro-futurism and accelerationism and how there are these sort of natural convergences. And also uh, it gets into a bit this idea that, you know, capitalism uh, having uh, grown on the back of chattel slavery has at its core this uh, uh, black history and politics that then can only recur in a theory of accelerationism that takes capitalism as the prime mover. And so that this is not a, a kind of, um, ex post facto attempt to merge these two things, but is, is really just reconstituting what's a, a original, uh, connection and affinity. But, the essay is most interesting for me in the way that it articulates uh, what we were just talking about a second ago with um, with this idea of agency. So it, here's a quote from it. Left accelerationism restages tragic Landian nihilism as a comedic urban romance with technology. In their 2013 Manifesto for an Accelerationist Politics, Nick Cernesic and Alex Williams argue that land confuses speed with acceleration, missing an understanding of, quote, an acceleration which is also navigational, an experimental process of discovery within a universal space of possibility, end quote, inside quote. If a technology can just be accelerated, Cernesic and Williams argue, then a post-capitalist future should be possible through the appropriation of capitalist modes and structures towards another better end. 
Their book, Inventing Future, anticipates in particular the acceleration of automation towards a post-work society, etc., etc. But now it goes, left accelerationism is waterlogged by a duty to grapple with identity politics, labor, and practicality. Well-meaning Cernisic and Williams are consumed with searching for a subject who can contend with the immeasurably vast and powerful forces of capital. This seems to be a knee-jerk, obligatory reaction against lands callous and aggressive in humanism. That, to me, is the heart of it, okay? Mm -hmm. This seems to be left accelerationism with its attempt to reassert Promethean mastery to quote Dean, seems to be a knee-jerk, obligatory reaction against Land's callous and aggressive in humanism. They are troubled by the fact that Land's account of capital's acceleration is also an account of inevitable human obsolescence. What good is a revolution if we're counted among its casualties? That, to me, is the heart of it, and I regret not having shared this uh, with my co-host and travel guide, Mr. Cly, because I think that puts it very well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I would say if there's one thing that's sort of – (laughs) well, I'll say this about the Alt-Woke Manifesto. It's not good, and the the ending is particularly pathetic because after starting out like attacking, you know, wokeness and a sort of generalized sort of left-wing socialist critique of – uh, identity politics. It ends with, this is literally the last paragraph. All woke is the work of Anon. We are a collective of other. Some of us are sex workers, some immigrants, many queer. There are even a few white privileged white cucks against us. Yeah. You can just imagine the, the, the white graduate student who wrote this manifesto being like, oh man, I just critiqued identity politics, but it, I'm anonymous. I'll say that I'm a queer black sex worker. Well, it's just, it's the, it's the, like, yeah. if you actually believe, don't put that in there. It, like if you if you think that 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 the um, this sort of identity stuff is is a poison, why are you playing or the a game? Chimera? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why are you playing uh, the game? And why is that the uh, anyway? Yeah. But uh, I, I will say this: there is a real, a, a serious divide that this gets at. So if you look at somebody like sort of Torre Reid, uh-huh. right, the historian, um, who has this kind of critique of a particular mode of history that sees um, the kind of perpetuation of disparities for African-Americans within this sort of race primary context, right? Um, and he's of a kind of sort of left-wing bent um, and a, a historian of African-American history, but takes a sort of line, he's, you know, he's a piece between Obama and Coates. To be sure, Reconstruction, the New Deal, the war on poverty, and even the civil rights movement failed to address all the challenges confronting blacks, but the limitations of each of these movements reflected political constraints imposed on them in large part by capital. And he traces the ways in which a lot of interventions actually did try and disentangle race and class. And in, you know, this kind of reading, um, which is a sort of, you know, kind of very historically literate, um, you know, kind of left-wing reading, you know, the failures are actually related to that disentangling and, and, you know, uh, not enough attention paid to the constraints imposed by capital, which, which uh, prevent you from reforming the system in a way that would be more beneficial. And I think that sort of basic breakdown of do we emphasize race and the particular challenges that kind of racist structures and institutions within society impose upon, um, 
people versus whether you adopt this sort of universal socialist focus intently on capital and um, sort of economic system. Mm. Uh, I think that does, I think that does get to the heart of uh, something real and, and a real sort of intellectual debate. And also this alt woke manifesto manifests a kind of obsession with, um, wokeness with identity politics with the idea that's that 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 we're going to get you know caught in these identity struggles that sort of i think drives a lot of people to distraction and it's sort of it's sort of i just find it telling that within the context of somebody who theoretically really wants to argue for a accelerationist leftist politics all the real emotion and energy is is sunk and kind of wasted in like snarky lines about wokeness. Yeah, it shows something that goes back also to an earlier point mm-hmm. about the ability of th- this is sort of the the inescapable aspect of neoliberalism. What appears to be inescapable, you know, this too shall pass. But um, accelerationism is supposed to be the inevitability of cataclysm or of mutation, and yet accelerationism itself gets sort of neutered and sterilized and become snark almost immediately. But, um, but the, the thing that is still interesting to me and, and important to me about it is this broad struggle with the conditions, parameters of modernity. And I wrote this thing for the baffler a while ago about this guy, Cody Wilson, who was the 3d guns guy who's now in prison and for possible, it's a very strange case with him. He was publishing schematics that you could print a 3d gun that would be undetectable. Yes. But that's not why he's in prison. So he was doing quite well with that and winning his court cases. And then in the midst of winning court case, so the, the, Shortest read. Go pick up the baffler. Look for it's a, a, it's a, a very piece good on Cody piece. Wilson. It's fascinating. Yeah. Cody Wilson is is a insufferable philosopher quoting an insufferable <laughs> philosopher quoting rather sort of brilliant propagandist uh, mm-hmm. who combines left and right aspects of accelerationism. You know, the piece disappointed me a little bit. He's like, you know. You know, now felons and children and the insane, okay, blah, 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 you know, and this man wants children to have guns. I was like, all right, fine, you know, take the easy road, fine, you know, but at least he was saying, you know, it's intentionally disruptive. That's true. There's a kind of Ernst Jüngerian, Jüngerian, Jüngerian thing to him. But one other thing about these manifestos is like, you know, when you compare it to sort of older Marxism, just Marxism is very, very concerned with the conditions of working people and like what it's like, mm. right? Like, um, maybe, and I don't know. Well, <laughs> depend depends on the yeah. the Marxist. Yeah, but this is it's constantly at a level of, of abstraction. And yeah, but how could it not be if there's no longer an industrial proletariat? This is what I'm saying. How could it not be at a level of abstraction if you're trying to recreate Marxism without an industrial proletariat? And it acknowledges this. The accelerationist, the Accelerate Manifesto acknowledges this because it says that the older conditions of democracy and of liberalism have gone away, right? Which is true. 
which is true. The conditions of the, the liberal subject or the individual subject of the liberal nation state really no longer exists. But neither does the proletariat. Broadly speaking, I, I find these emotional sentiments behind this, the philosophical impulse at a personal level, compelling and interesting. Mm -hmm. I just don't know what it amounts to except that the humanism that land wants, which seems coherent to me, but terrifying. Yeah. Shall we do the uh, video that you sent me? Set it up. Okay. (laughs) Um, I picked a YouTube video called American Reflex. Reflex is spelled with two, no, I'm sorry, three X's on the end. American Reflex. It was uploaded to YouTube in April of 2015 by an artist named Ali Coates. And it was done in collaboration, or it's starring, directed by Ali Coates, starring Sign Pierce, Signe Pierce, S-I-G-N-E, filmed in location in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So what this thing is, is a very tall... Myrtle Beach? No. Myrtle Beach is a special place. I believe it. Anything like Virginia Beach? uh, No, it's like... So... There's a Danny McBride line from a movie where he's like, man, I was drunk. And I mean Myrtle Beach drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say no more. Yeah. Point um, Pleasant drunk. Yeah, and it's like... Sort of uh, strip clubs and and churches okay. and kind of uh, like just sort of a resorty area for adults. Basically. I got you. Um, so this video begins with a very tall, very blonde, seems to be a woman – the body of a very tall, very blonde woman in a short blue dress. How would you describe that kind of dress? Um, sort of skin tight. Yeah. Very short. Is that a cocktail dress? I'm not sure what the definition is. A, a very tight, short blue dress on a tall blonde woman in high, high heels who is wearing on her face, we presume it's a her, we can't see her face. Her body is certainly suggestive of a woman. Uh, a mask that is a con, I'm always screwing these, convex mirrored surface. So a smooth, mirrored, rounded mask shape. So think of a rounded oval mirror fit over the face of this tall, blonde, female figure, And this tall, blonde mirror face, can we call her mirror face? I think that'll work for this, uh, purposes of this. Mirror face is walking through Myrtle Beach, which Phil has, I think, set up quite aptly. So if you take like strip clubs, strip mall, churches, drunks, adult resort, and you think about how the boardwalk in that area, how the drunk area for the drunks looks that's what we've got so it's crowded with people uh you know guy with his shirt off looks to be in his late 30s backwards hat tattoos backwards plaid hat uh earring goatee who's hitting on the woman like 
wants to get a picture with her. And basically what it is is mirror face yeah. walking like through licks, the streets. He like licks her mask, right? Does he lick her mask? Yeah, it it makes sense. Yeah, it, and, and so up to that point, like, you sort of get the sense that, like – this guy, like, licking the mask. Which, like, this is probably the kind of interaction that they wanted to get, right? It's just sort of crowds, drunken yeah, crowds reacting. Sort of reacting, performing for the camera, yes. as well as, yes. you know, in in relationship to the imagery and symbolism that she's trying to put out, which is a sort of, like, faceless sex symbol, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Right. So up to that point, it's sort of like, you, you sort of go, okay, this is probably the reaction they, that they wanted. And then it, it shifts. Describe that shift. A group of, I think it's like teenagers. It appears um, to be teenagers. Yeah. Start going, and I think it's to the guy who licks her like, no, that's a man. Right? Yeah, it starts right about there. Yeah. Yeah. And... Or maybe um, even before that, there's all these like, shouts off camera that you hear yeah. of, it's a he, it's a shim, that's right. a man. Right. So the idea is like these people think, start thinking that, you know, why, why is she covering her face? Maybe it's because she's a man. And like, you know, she's pretty tall, right? Very tall. Yeah. Um, in, in high heels. Right. Leggy, tall, leggy, blonde. Yeah. With a sort of. Uh, you know, sort of relatively like flat chest yeah. where you could see, or maybe you couldn't. See, I, let me not say it. Actually, you finish what you were saying. She doesn't look like a. She doesn't look like a man. Right? She doesn't look like a man, which makes right. it so fascinating. Right. How many people scream? That's a man. Right. So, and it initially, you know, it might even it, it. It seems to me to be in relation to this guy hitting on her. Right. Like. That the, it's that's a man is in relation yeah, to him hitting as on if her. it's more about screwing with him than her. I, I, that's not what I got from it at all. Well, I mean, what, whatever it is, it happens yeah, yeah. around that time, right? Like, and um, and then this she's walking through. She's yes. doing these like kind of sexualized photo shoot type yes moves at various places, and this crowd starts following her, and they're like, "That's a man." Um, Someone throws water. Yeah, like somebody runs past and like tries to grab between her legs to see if they can like grab a penis. Um, and the crowd gets bigger and bigger and is like hyping itself up. And uh, and then at one point, this woman runs and pushes her and she falls on the ground and like like cuts her knee so that she's bleeding. And that's. That's basically it. All right. Phil is not impressed by this. I think this is a thrilling, riveting work of art. I, I, I really do. It's a 14-minute video, and it is riveting, visually uh, just a kind of pulp visual that's this sort of hyper-real, saturated, maybe – They play with time. They sort of speed up yeah. the video at various points. Um, I, it's it, it's interesting to watch the kind of crowd build and and hype itself up. Have you seen the Safdie Brothers uh, movies, any other movies? They did um, the Junkie movie, Only Heaven Knows Something, and then they did the recent one, Good Time, with the Twilight guy. He's very good in it. No. Uh, Good Time is fantastic. It's this very lurid sort of update on a 70s exploitation picture. But you know the genre people talk about, Vaporwave? 
No. Um, have you heard that? No. I'm never entirely sure what it means. I know there are whole books written on it, and um, I've read a couple of smaller things, but I feel like I can intuit what it means. I feel I understand what it means. You've seen these videos that take and combine a sort of 80s video game aesthetic with a futurist thing. So they have this sort of 80s video game fonts and the 80s video game graphic designs just like this. If you look at the title captions on this American Reflex video, the title captions look like 80s or maybe 90s, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s video game fonts and they See, have that is, feel is, of like a nostalgic yeah. vision of technology by the way very quickly yeah. there's a student at unc chapel hill who did a thing on fonts in isis videos mm. and how they track with the fonts of differing like changing versions of call of duty that's fascinating and i think not unrelated by yeah. the way so this video uses those fonts it also has this kind of lurid exploitation movie sort of thing to it but you know basically what happens is this big sex object mirror face walks around doesn't do anything big sex object mirror face doesn't do anything terribly you know this very striking figure right this very striking tall leggy blonde mirror face figure who strikes some poses but doesn't do anything doesn't terribly do anything, provocative, no. doesn't even really go out of her way to try and call attention to herself. And when people like, engage, bedlam. yeah, like like she will walk away. She like she keeps yes. walking away yes. and they keep following yes. her and more people. They keep following her and more and more people come and they get more and more agitated and they take her very existence not only as yeah. a provocation but as a license to harm her, to indulge their and, own and most sort of violent like instincts. All of Myrtle Beach like – you know, different, like different races, seemingly different economic classes of people based on how they're they're dressed or like a part of this crowd. You're no not one, sure. Yeah. How, and it builds know. and it builds. No one meaningfully intervenes in any way. Yep. And it's a sort of, you know, it's like a thriller movie, like a, a sexual exploitation horror thriller movie playing out on Myrtle Beach with mirror face. I mean, it is a real life art piece thriller sexy horror film thing and what you're watching is look nobody meaningfully intervenes as Mm -hmm. you know and we won't give the whole thing away but basically the the sort of verbal abuse builds to throwing water and then it builds to she gets assaulted in the video and nobody meaningfully intervenes and what you realize is two things it has to do with her as a sexual object Mm -hmm. but it has Everything to do with the fact that you can't see her face. Yeah. And she's not a human being. Right. And she, at no point in the video, emerges as a human being. She's an object of fantasy, a a, a, a figure of sort of carnal and violent feeling. Well, but also and- that's part of what the poses are about is her doing sort of advertising, sexualized advertising yes. poses so that she's supposed to exist as a – cipher as a product of cultural detritus that is not human right yes and and you don't feel her to be human as a viewer right and even if you're revolted by the violence towards her what revolts you is the people doing the violence i never felt empathy for her i'll be honest with you i didn't 
as I was watching this, I was revolted by what was happening, mm-hmm. but the revulsion had to do on an instinctual level yeah. with seeing these people give in to these, mm-hmm. what, you know, it's like wicked appetites, not with seeing a woman abused because I didn't really connect with her as a human being. When med students are dissecting cadavers, yeah. they the hands and faces are first covered. Yeah. And a buddy going through this and was like, I didn't really understand why. And then after we'd already been working on these corpses, they were, you know, so they, they uncover the, you know, head and face. And there was like, oh, it's a person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a person. Um, it, it's a person. And here, I mean, like the gay panic thing is fascinating too, right? Like the immediate mm-hmm. landing on. It's a man, you know, I mentioned the sort of flat chested just to say, you know, just to say, so it's not like a super buxom woman in the sense that, but she's very feminine looking. Yeah, you know, she doesn't so look like a man. She doesn't look like a man. So the leaping to it's a man but, but, is this sort of bizarre gay panic thing. You You also have this. Like as a viewer, you're watching it through a video screen and you're analyzing the crowd yeah. and, and the person and you're looking and going like, I'm pretty sure that's a woman. Like, you know. But but am I 100% sure? But yeah, I'm not 100% sure. But I'm pretty sure it's a woman. But you – but like within that crowd, very quickly they get to the point where it's like they're 100% sure, you know? Yeah, but why do they think it's a man? You know, what makes them so certain it's a man? You know, they feel like this thing, you know, it's these ancient uh, ritual sacrifices where you'd you'd bring in a certain kind of animal. And I don't just mean various cultures had forms of this, but you get a a certain kind of animal. It has to be prepared in a certain way and then you have to kill it in a certain way. And it's important that the animal be a repository for something that needs killing or purging or excising. I I don't know. Maybe it makes it easier to attack her if she's a man. Maybe it means that they can understand this as that they're being tricked and then therefore it justifies attacking her. Mm -hmm. Maybe what they're saying, or or maybe it's just like a, like a sort of deep seated gay panic thing, which I'm not, Sure, that's not what it, I'm not sure yeah. it's not like uh, a sort of like a sexual panic thing. It, it, it's all, hard I mean, to all say. Those things. And all also, just things. I think that the the delight of being of a crowd heaping scorn and abuse on somebody. I've been thinking lately. You sit on the subway, right? Mm-hmm. Phil and I live in New York. You sit on the subway. These delays happen. You know, you hear this line. They happen more and more frequently. MTA has been atrocious. Subway service has been atrocious over the past year uh, in relative terms. You take it sort of for granted as a philosophical proposition or statement about society that the veneer of civilization is thin, you know, and at any time man's barbarism can reemerge. But then you sit on the subway for 20 minutes trying to get somewhere and nobody riots. Over and over again, over the past year, everybody's trying to get somewhere. New Yorkers, not a docile people. And not only does nobody riot, nobody 
or only very infrequently do people even start cursing or flip out almost every time. I'm on the subway every day, twice a day. Almost every time what happens is people sit there silently and suffer for 20 minutes. And part of why they do that, I think, is everybody knows on some level that if they let go, there's no putting it back in the bottle. You know, if you start cursing on that trapped train, sitting on, you know, sitting inside the tunnel between the bridge and canal or whatever, you can't just vent. You can't just curse and then let it out and go back to reading your, playing your iPhone video game or whatever. That's it. Now it's chaos. Now. No, I mean, because New Yorkers are used to the person, the crazy person ranting on the subway. Like that person all of a sudden doesn't exist. That, what do you mean by that? If you've been on the subway, you, like you've had that experience of like, like maybe ten feet away from you, there's a clearly mentally disturbed person yeah, sure. who is like just going off, and everybody else is just sort of behaving sure. as if nothing's happening. So I think that is, I think, probably it. Not that if you started cursing, everybody would go crazy, but if you started cursing, you would become a non-entity. You think that's it? I don't think people imagine the possibility that they can become non-entities in that way. I don't, I think the non-entity for most, you know, like in that situation, I don't think it crosses their mind. Look, I say most people, I'm talking about myself. Um, anyway, I don't know. But, well, so what does this have to do yeah. with the, with uh, accelerationism po- politics? I felt some connection between vaporwave and accelerationism, and this had a vaguely vaporwave aesthetic to it. I don't know that there's any really immediate... Oh, I'll tell you what it is. I'm sorry. I take it back. The connection between this video with mirror face and this kind of escalating violence and accelerationism is that you have a dehumanizing, mm-hmm. dehumanized subject... Mm-hmm inciting what are effectively pre-programmed responses in these people who appear to give in to very um, primitive, mm-hmm. violent, and uh, vicious impulses. It's a collective intelligence of the species operating in an ugly way. On a biological level, yeah. exactly. And, and also sort of convincing them that they're seeing something different than than what they're actually seeing yeah, or exactly. convincing them that there's a reality which they are seeing which the sort of evidence of the senses doesn't give you know give for and that somehow warrants them in taking this kind of collective abusive yes. scapegoat type action yeah. well well said yes exactly that and so i think that the problem with a lot of these sort of network theories and cybernetic theories when they're taken to this pure nihilistic post-human position is that, you know, the, the, the biological, the metaphysical and the technological interacts, you know, that they are not, they are, uh, overlapping vectors. It's a really interesting piece in the wall street journal last weekend. Actually forget that. I won't get into that. The, these are overlapping. And so in this case, you see the way in which these biological organisms who are also part of a social ecosystem Mm -hmm. react to this dehumanized subject. In a similar way, you see online on the internet the way that biological organisms, part of a social ecosystem, react to dehumanized subjects within 
these yeah. cybernetic feedback loops right. that generally with a sort of sort of thin uh, ideological justification. I mean, Helen Helen Andrews has a good piece about this about sort of experiencing a kind of shame internet shame. Oh storm. yeah, that was very good. Yeah. yeah, and and then sort of tracing like like there's always some sort of like justification yeah. based on whatever particular ideology it is that enables you to indulge in this very kind of like primitive sort of um, passions, right? Yeah. So before we wrap up, I just want to say uh, thank you to Michael Comerford. I hope I'm getting the name right, who um, sent me a bunch of accelerationist manifestos, a, a listener to the podcast, when I asked for left accelerationist manifestos, he sent me a bunch. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, did he send you the alt woke one? Now that we've trashed no, it, no, no, no. I so found that's your yeah, own. that's your yeah, fault. I'm responsible. He sent me actually uh, stuff that I wish I had used. Um, <laughs> there's an accelerationist reader that has all mm-hmm. this stuff from okay fairly recently. It's useful. Though. Thanks to uh, all the feedback we've been getting, everybody listening, um, and. Uh, uh, Anything yeah, you know we're going to do next? Try to be a person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Like a strict rhyme or a major chord. Prints, plaids, checks, houndstooth, tattersall, mattress. The clan Tartans invented by mill owners inspired by the hoax of Ashen to control their savage Scottish workers, tamed by a fabricated heraldry. Bailey, McGregor, McMartin. The kilt devised for workers to wear among the dusty clattering looms. Weavers, carters, spinners, the loader, the docker, the navvy, the planter, the picker, the sorter sweating at her machine in a litter of cotton as slaves in calico headrags sweated in fields. George Herbert, your descendant is a black lady in South Carolina. Her name is Irma and she inspected my shirt. Its color and fit and feel and its clean smell have satisfied both her and me. We have culled its cost and quality down to the buttonholes of simulated bone. The bising, the sizing, the facing, the characters printed in black on neckband and tail. The shape, the label, the labor, the color, the shade, the shirt.